0: A Highline Podcast. We live in a complicated and fascinating world that invites us to dive deep into its intricacies.
1: Exploring the ideas and events that excite, intrigue, irritate, and confound us is how we graduate our knowledge beyond meme culture. Join us over a
2: cocktail as we expand our understanding and share in the beauty we find along the way. I'm Stephen Torna.
0: I'm Kat Dwyer.
2: And I'm Stephen Henning. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench.
1: Oh. Oh, sweet. That was a good sound. Grip it and rip it, baby. Yes. <laughs> so I'm in Yeet. the middle. I'm in the middle of moving. We closed yesterday. And which uh, congratulations. That's I, so thank stinking exciting. Thank you. We did it, fam. It was really it was surreal.
2: It was I really, bet. really weird. Well, and um, you guys. I mean, you definitely had a bit of an emotional uh, roller coaster of. Yeah, we had a lot
1: of back and forth. Thank you for holding down. The, you guys did so good with John Locke. I was so proud of you. I love that. Episode. I was
0: very relieved when you said that because I was like, "Oh man, Henning wasn't here. Like, it's not going to be as robust of a conversation as it could have been."
1: But oh. I'm glad that
0: you. I'm glad we got your approval, honestly. Because
1: I that enjoyed the episode so much. Um. uh the the basics of we were so we so clearly like what cat is all about. What you're all about.
0: Are you mean lock? Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh yeah. No. Well, I mean. Locke is you, is what I'm trying to say. Like, yes, yeah, you align <laughs> very, very well. And I loved. I my favorite moment was when you guys when you stopped a little bit and you were like, wait, how does this support? Um, uh, this like, idea is this of,
2: a, is this in support is this support like communism? Yes, like- I loved that. Was, that like, was
0: a scary moment.
1: <laughs> the in the moment breakdown. You're like, wait. Let's figure this out.
0: <laughs> I, I was like we're not going to let this just go. We got to no, we got to no, think no, this no. through.
1: No, that was yeah. totally solid. But yeah, thanks thanks <laughs> for bearing with. That night you guys were recording, yeah, it was like 7:30 or 8. Um I was starting to get like a Zoom uh, meeting to go like meet with the underwriters because we did something that's basically unheard of and we bought a house with a mortgage with a zero credit score because we haven't had debt for like a year and a half before we applied for the mortgage. Mm -hmm. Um, so they needed
0: pretty impressive. I'd love to actually know like how that process played out.
1: It was, I mean, you guys kind of lived it. The consequences are last episode and I was not there, but (laughs) it was, I think it was so worth it. And I, I, uh, I'm, I'm personally just really proud of having accomplished that. um, but yeah, yeah I, I, meet, I had to and, meet with the underwriters and give them a bunch of extra information and make sure mm-hmm. like all my bank statements were all in a row. And it was stuff, uh, there was a whole thing. We had to end up converting the loan from conventional to FHA. And that had implications on the specific building I was trying to buy. And it was crazy. It was, it was crazy. But uh, mm-hmm. we're here now. Um, but I finished my bottle of Laphroaig 10 the night before we closed and I have not opened my new bottle of Lagavule and, and that is packed Ooh. anyway. So I just oh. cracked me a cold <laughs> Jeremiah Johnson mountain man, Scotch ale. It's hands, hey. hands down. It's the best beer that Montana brews any company, any brewery. I don't care at me on Twitter because mountain man is <laughs> the best beer way better oh, than I cold say. smoke. You Bozeman people. Yeah, no, that's fine. It's
2: it's better than cold smoke. I'm not going to fight you yet. No, do it. Fight me. Gloves are off. (laughs) Let's go. He's ready. (laughs) But you got to come to Bozeman and you have to come get some mountain walking.
0: Mountain walking? I do love mountain. walking. I
2: think they are the best brewery in Montana right now. Okay. They are pumping out Mm. incredible beers 24-7 and their stout game right now. Is on point. Do they have have a good scotch though? Because scotch ale is pretty much where I live. They've had scotch ales. They've got a bunch of mostly they're like what they would call like dessert beers, but they've got like a caramel chocolate stout and a peanut butter chocolate stout, and they had a chocolate cherry stout, and then they had like all of these fruit smoothie IPAs. One was like a strawberry. Banana and mango, and one was like coconut. Oh, banana, absolutely! I can get into and this. Lime. Oh, they're so good.
0: They also you, have like a really good, like proper New England yes. IPA. Like their, um, I think it's their June grass. Mm. I think, or is that not their New England IPA? Oh. June grass
2: might be the New England. Their cloud, whatever. They've got some hazy ones is their hazy. too. The June
0: grass is really crisp though, and good. Yeah. And they have a really, really good Czech style pilsner.
1: I like a good crisp IPA. It's it's like a slushy. Thirty four degrees here in Billings right now, and and a, <laughs> a cold slushy, dark yeah. beer. It's like it's it can't decide if it's snowing or raining, so it's just given us a little bit of everything today, and it's very it's annoying. It's yeah. cold and miserably windy here.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: <laughs> there you go. You know <laughs> what is, came through? That I nice. I will say, you know what this brewery, Mountains Walking, is that the name mm-hmm. of the brewery? You know Correct. what they don't have though is the the best graphic designers working for them because the, the Mountain Man can has always been the sexiest can of beer I've ever seen. Ooh, you gotta look at a mountain walking. I was gonna can. say I was gonna nah. say just,
0: just because I have a friend who nah, doesn't like man. mountains walking because she says that their label looks like a website. So I think maybe they've over they have too many graphic designers <laughs> over engineering
3: okay. their label. Okay. I'm,
1: I'm Googling it right now, fam. We
0: mountains gotta do walking. like a a oh, pub crawl situation in our
1: respective hometowns.
2: That would be fun.
1: Oh, yes. yeah, I'm into it. MountainsWalking.com. They got the .com, fam. Look at them. Ooh. Oh, okay. I get the, I get the, it's very geometric. Like, it's very yeah. Uh, yeah, modern logos and all their yeah. merch as well.
3: Mm-hmm. I That Clean. looks pretty
1: good, but, I mean, the old can especially, the pint can. Torna, do you remember these black Uh, cans with the, with Mm -hmm, the bearded mm -hmm. man with the piece of straw in his mouth and the big aviator glasses,
2: blue and green colored almost like, yeah, yeah.
1: it was. And then the, the can was one of those where like you pop it and the entire top comes off. It's not just like a soda can popper.
2: Yes. I do like those. Those were fucking hard to come by.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They don't make them anymore because, uh, the front brewing was, um, I think they either rebranded or somebody else bought the brewery and renamed it mm-hmm. Jeremiah Johnson. And Mountain Man is like their staple. It's like the thing that puts them on the map. Um, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Enough about what I'm drinking, though. Tell me
2: about your beverages. Well, uh, do you like it, Kat?
0: Oh, I enjoy it very much. Yeah, it's great. Okay. Why did you ask me? No, that? no, because
2: it's like you a never weird asked drink. First, that's I, weird. I know, I know. The two, two, two things. One, this is not technically the drink I'm about to tell you.
0: Oh my god! <laughs> Whoa. Okay. So okay.
2: tonight, given you know springtime's coming, and you know I've been wearing my palm leaf hat, and it's been sunny, and <laughs> so I thought, hey, let's start featuring what I would consider like springtime drinks into it and then it's windy and whatever but (laughs) we're having a nice Aperol spritz this evening two ounces of Aperol three ounces of Prosecco and then two ounces of club soda stirred up with ice I love Aperol spritz I've already like had them like three times in the last couple weeks because I've been I've brought them to like some parties and things like that and then like during the spring and summer drink so many Aperol spritz (laughs) but Kat had mentioned like two days ago something about a Mezcal Negroni. Oh, yeah. So it's not a Negroni, but I did put three quarters of Mezcal into the Aperol Spritz. I was going
0: to say, it tastes stronger than just the Aperol Spritz. So I cut
2: back on the Aperol because I know you don't like super sweet stuff. Appreciate it. And then added some Mezcal. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually
0: kind of perfect.
2: Yeah. So it turned out like really good. I actually like it. There you so, go. But you were nervous make, that like, she a smoked... wouldn't like it. It's just—it's. I wasn't sure if it was going to taste good, but I just went for it.
0: It is good. I will say my um. One of the things my weird lingering like residual COVID mm-hmm. effect mezcal uh, is one of the beans. things. This yeah. is reminding me of that now. That like tastes slightly different. Uh, like I can taste the smokiness, but mm-hmm. it's kind of like. In the distance, like I'm looking through curtains and I can kind of make out what it is, but it's not fully there. Right. You know what I mean? But it's delicious because I know what it's supposed to taste like. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, yeah, that's what we're drinking tonight. And the Spritz, the April Spritz, as far as like history goes, all I really know about it is it's kind of like a form of what's called an Americano. Um, oh. Which is not like also. like the coffee. Well, no, but similar to the coffee and in, in kind of. Lore. I don't know how much of this is accurate, but the story goes like some of the bitter liqueurs, the coffee and the wine in Italy, uh, oftentimes like American soldiers found them to be too strong. So they would dilute like the coffee with water or they would dilute um, the wine with like some soda or the liqueur with soda. And that's where this term kind of oh, came from. That's interesting. And then Aperol wasn't invented until. 1916 or something like that. That's when it was actually formulated, and then the Apérol Spritz came into to fashion after these two brothers in Italy f- created this liqueur. That's wind.
0: That's wind.
2: Yeah. Oh, so there's this like. It,
0: That's not thunder. Are you sure? It sounds like it's cracking.
2: <laughs> well, okay. So we're gonna take a little diversion. derail, derail. <laughs> it, it won't be picked up in the audio, but there's this thunderous sounding noise and that is because the window in my bedroom is definitely not properly installed and so it leaks air and so when the wind blows it like creates extra noise and it sounds kind of like thunder and then also I'm always wearing wintry clothes because it just leaks air You're just like nobody's the business I know that game <laughs> <laughs> okay so, sorry for that no <laughs> And I live in a brand new house, just some, somebody that was in charge of putting in windows failed miserably at their job. To do yeah, it. so you should hire me to do your work instead right. of other losers. Do you do windows? Is that I something you specialize everything. in? You do everything. Uh, I, I've you specialize done a lot of in
1: generalities. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. That
2: didn't I mean- That should be
0: your dis- Twitter bio. I didn't mean for that to sound mean.
2: S- <laughs> no, 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 It just not I mean. I
0: specialize in generalities. I specialize
2: in remodel. Oh, okay, okay. And that means? Everything. Everything. All-encompassing. Dude, I am going to hire
1: you so hard as I... <laughs> as <Do it>. I <laughs> renovate this place that I'm moving into. Yeah. Oh. Did you get to paint yet? No. Um, okay. There was some weird... I mean, so, like, our buy sell said that possession didn't turn over until everything is recorded with, like, the deed is with the county recorder. Um, okay. And the seller lives and signed all his stuff in North Dakota and just like FedExed it and it didn't come Mm -hmm. until like this afternoon so like we could move in but we just to be above board we didn't want to start making any modifications until we had that recorded so so we decided to move everything and then we're going to paint on Saturday do a party and uh yeah get that all done up so Yeah, we're into it. Homeowner life. I'm realizing that I am the furthest from being a handyman, so I intend to learn many things from you over the next few years, Torna.
2: This is awesome, and I know for a fact that we will be building out your studio at some point, Yep, which is going to be so exciting. Yep, absolutely. It's going to be a really good opportunity for me to learn some of those skills. I've I've done some acoustic work last year. I built some acoustic panels and um acoustic I mean dampening boxes for church and so I've got a little bit of that world before you're even thinking that
1: though I mean I have to finish a basement so right I can do that (laughs) (laughs) and that yeah um that's that's gonna be a whole process but I'm so excited for it the other thing I'm pretty psyched about is that when the appraisal came in they were like yeah we'll appraise it for how much you offered um but the guy put in his notes he was like I could appraise this house for a lot more already.
2: Right. So you could in a few months get a reappraisal and. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So.
0: Isn't that a good feeling to know that like you already made money? Exactly. Because
1: the (laughs) the feeling. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) The feeling is like, wait, are you saying I could potentially have just gained that much (laughs) in equity just by (laughs) signing the papers? That's crazy to me. Money's weird.
2: Yes, it is. But uh, Well, this is exciting. Yeah. Well, and we'll have to we'll, uh, build you a podcasting table or something. Oh, yeah. That Dixie actually a, found a, be... a table
1: at Goodwill that we're just going to redo. We're going to kind of restore. So. It's actually very yeah. much like the one sitting between you guys right now. It kind of folds right. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, cool. Like
2: a drop leaf style.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah. And then the, the, the legs kind of like swivel out to support the, the leaves when you lift them up.
2: It's, uh, it's pretty neat. It's going to be a good D&D table as well. But Excellent. oh, So good. <laughs> uh, I am dying to build some furniture. Let's do it. I've got to dabble a little bit. I'm currently in the process of finding shop space. There you go. With like two other people to actually set up a full-time wood shop.
1: Oh, yeah, that's right. So it's not like attached to you or yes, like you have a so place go to there go and then you have a place to be work. home.
2: Yep. That's I've very got- nice. A list of people that want stuff built and know where to build it. So I'm. Am like,
0: I on that list?
2: I am. yes. Cutting board. Of yes. course. Okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's stuff I can do at home easily. But like, someone wants me to build a kitchen table.
1: Oh yeah. Uh, someone yeah. also
2: wants a wine cabinet. I want a big,
1: uh, like, floating desk. Basically, like. Yep. Yeah, mm. mount a big desktop to a wall is what we're trying to do. All sorts of stuff, yeah. man. I. It it must be a really gratifying feeling to know that you have all these people already lined up but you just don't have the time or the bandwidth to do it yet. You're like, "Yes, I'll get there." <laughs> I will get and there. And I know you're already and asking
2: me. <laughs> I've already got a bunch of, yeah. I've already got a bunch of plans. Well, I've I'm, the life of the contractor and up A long time. So I've got a bunch of stuff planned and and specs and kind of like ready to go. I just need somewhere to do it. Yeah. There you go. So I can start making money. <laughs>
1: Oh, so good. Well, do you guys want to crack into some Jean-Jacques Rousseau now that we've covered our boys Hobbs and Locke? Actually, real quick before I uh, hit Rousseau, I guess the the announcement, I'm sure people have already heard it at at the very beginning, but Whiskey Bench is officially out on the Highline Network as of this episode. Correct. Correct. We're doing the thing, fam. We're up. The new website is Highline.network conveniently enough and the Instagram handle matches exactly as well
0: nice Nice.
1: getting stuff out we're doing the thing super hyped very excited Um, it's a great logo thank you thank you that was all my wife all my wife she's a genius Um, the uh, the little HL down in the corner of the whiskey bench artwork like Mm -hmm. it works on so many levels like the H&L are pushed together there's the line above it because of Highline but also like it very much looks like a brand you could actually put on like a horse or a cow in montana <laughs> and we're pretty and we're pretty <laughs> so like brand. an actual brand like an actual First brand I was like what like, are you talking no, about no this is full on branding <laughs> Just, <laughs> that's hilarious Heck, yeah yeah so if anyone heard our our teasers and promos on the last episode of ravel welcome in friends these are my other friends steven and cat and uh, <laughs> and we talk about crazy stuff like if the nature of mankind is fundamentally good or evil. That's what we're here. That's what I want to talk about. I'll give you the history of Rousseau because you guys so well like gave us biographies of Hobbes and uh, and Locke. So Jean Jacques Rousseau uh, was born in June 1712 and died July 2nd 1778. He he does have some writings at the very end of his life that actually talked about he was hearing about what was happening in America. And he's like, yo, this is cool. This is new. But then he died and didn't get to comment any further (laughs) on it. Two years. Yeah. (laughs) That's a shame. Rip Russo. Uh, So that's a bummer. But he thought the experiment that we were launching um, was interesting, to say the least. Um, and he was familiar already with names like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and all them. So he was born in Geneva, which at the time was a city state and uh, hmm. a Protestant associate of the Swiss Confederacy. Geneva is considered uh, kind of the seat of Calvinism as an answer to Catholicism. This is where all the strong Protestant roots came in. And uh, his ancestor, maybe five generations back, had fled to Geneva oh maybe I'm getting the the timeline wrong but basically his family ended up in Geneva because uh people were fleeing persecution of French Catholics in Paris Mm -hmm. Geneva was also like a very normal place from people in very like upper echelon of society down to tradespeople. it was just a normal place for people to engage in political debate like it was just the thing that was on everyone's mind And particularly at the time when he was growing up, there was lots of critique on how the ruling class oligarchy was kind of making a mockery of what the Swiss Confederacy could be. And basically people were critiquing a lot of the oligarchical system that was ruling them at the time. And they were they were starting to look for alternatives like do we go to democracy or like how do how could monarchy look in our nation state? Very fun stuff, right? Let's see his family history. The trade of watchmaking was basically a family tradition back uh, a few generations. His
0: they made good watches in that that neck of the woods.
1: Absolutely, they True. did. <laughs> um, Still do, I think. Yeah. His father Isaac, following his grandfather and his father and his brothers, they all went into the watchmaking business in Geneva. And uh, notwithstanding his artisan um status as a watchmaker he was very well educated and a lover of music his his father is on record uh basically the, the the quote is a genevan watchmaker is a man who can be introduced anywhere a parisian watchmaker is only fit to talk about watches
3: oh <laughs> <stop>. <laughs> shit
2: yeah right throw some shade man. get out of here frenchies kind of Duncan. <laughs> dunking on their heritage but yes. Good. yes 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 absolutely
1: Jean-Jacques mother was from an upper class Calvinist family she was a preacher's kid like her her father was basically a street like evangelist in Geneva continuing to teach people about what what good Calvinism offered above the the ruling like Catholic milieu of the time Jean-Jacques in writing his autobiography, which I also learned his autobiography basically launched the idea of an autobiography. Like he was basically the first one to write about himself. Hmm. Hmm. I thought that was pretty interesting, but, uh, yeah, he, he has a line that says I was born almost dying and they had little hope of saving me. So his, his mother had had a few miscarriages and like stillbirths before him. It was, it was touch and go when he was born. He was baptized on july fourth seventeen twelve in the great Cathedral, he was baptized Catholic, uh, and then his mother died of a uh, a gnarly fever only nine days after he was born so oh, growing up with his father and his many siblings, like he never he never knew his mother let's see as a young man, he apprentices as a notary and an engraver eventually. The engraver, though kind of set his opinions of apprenticeship or apprenticeships askew because the engraver was like super abusive and like would get drunk and just like beat the crap out of him with rods and stuff. So from an early age, he wasn't really a fan of that kind of like, I don't know if they were talking in employment terms then, but he he was like, no, I don't like this. I got to figure something out for myself.
0: Yeah. Different mm-hmm. trade,
1: not that one. Yeah. Uh, when he was 15, this is this is the story right here that sets a lot of things up. So when he was 15, he ran out of the city walls playing with his buddies, and they basically they stayed out too long and got locked out of the city gates after curfew. So he went to the adjoining city of Savoy, and he took shelter with a, uh, a Roman Catholic priest who introduced him to a woman, and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation, but her name was Francois-Louis de Warrens, and so he was 15 at the time. She was 29. She was a noblewoman of Protestant background who was separated from her husband, and she was uh, essentially a professional proselytizer, like sent here by the king of her city to help bring Mm -hmm. Protestants back to Catholicism. That started- Pause. Yeah, go for it.
0: Why was she? Do you know why she was separated from her husband? I do not. And like why? How that was condoned? And like what? No. No. Okay.
1: No. Basically, okay. I think I think she was basically um, like with the the Catholic priest and maybe like a convent of some sort, just like as a okay, a shelter of some sort. I'm really not sure. I don't have any background on that. Okay. But basically, she was helping like deconvert Protestants back to Catholicism, which they she successfully did with Rousseau, so he converts to Catholicism around this time. Um, obviously not this night or anything, but they, they, they keep up the relationship. He goes and visits the Roman Catholics outside of Geneva, and uh, they kind of strike this up. And, and what the theory is is that de Warrens, this woman, and Rousseau were really finding common ground on, like, they were looking to reject Calvinism's idea of total depravity of man. Which obviously you can see foreshadowing where some of his philosophies come from regarding this mm-hmm. <laughs> the state of nature. <laughs> right. Right. But so like five years later, he still has a relationship with this woman. Keep in mind she is oh, he was fifteen and twenty nine. She was twenty nine when they met. So she is fourteen years older than him. So when he turns twenty, basically they start hooking up as lovers. I was I was waiting for yeah. that part of the
3: story. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um all right. But so he he's kind of in a in a rebellious streak against his father and his family. So this woman takes him as a lover now and also employs tour. him as the yeah. steward of her house. Oh,
0: <laughs> oh snap. He got set up. Yeah.
1: So like he, now he's in this relationship Sugar where baby. he's like he's super confused yeah. by the sexual side of their relationship and it like he
0: <laughs> th- be a catholic the article yeah the
1: article <laughs> i read was like yeah it made him super uncomfortable but to his dying day he always considered her to be the like the greatest love of his life which oh i'm sure maybe a conversation about grooming <laughs> is needed at that point but okay <laughs> yeah Wow,
0: well, there's something powerful in that, no, right? I, I mean, what a, I get it, I get it. They had some kind. To some degree, they had like a, it sounds like a mentor-mentee relationship. A little bit, and mm-hmm. then, yeah, yeah. Which,
1: so in his twenties, he took to uh, studies as he would continually come up on long bouts of uh, hypochondria. So he would like basically just like close close himself off and just study things like philosophy, mathematics, music, all sorts of stuff. This is where most of my research breaks down because, again, I've been busy buying a house and stuff. But the the short notes of it are: after a while, in 1742, he moves to Paris uh, to present. Basically, he invented a new form of musical notation and wanted to present it to the Parisian academia of the time. And like he was assuming, because a lot of people were telling him it was brilliant and it was a lot better than the the system that. Like Renaissance composers were using. Basically, he thought he was going to get super rich off of his musical notation invention. And he presented it and basically did like a thesis defense. And the entire panel that heard it was like, it, they didn't even deliberate. They were just immediately like, no, that's dumb.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, no. Poor kid. Um,
1: <laughs> so he had a hard time uh. with that and then just kind of struggled through some, like, he wasn't super engaged with jobs or with with his endeavors after that for a while, very much like kind of beaten down, like a Charlie Brown syndrome a little bit. 1754, he moves back to Geneva and reconverts to Calvinism. Ooh, (laughs) rollercoaster.
0: Breaks up with his girlfriend.
1: Abandons Catholicism. (laughs) And then, uh, and then he moves around a little bit more. He ends up in a city and I, uh, I failed to note the city, but uh, basically from like 16 or 1762 to 17, 65, he has this run in with the local government, and that basically they're they're uh charging him for blasphemy against like saying things like he reconverted to Calvinism, but he held on to a belief that Calvinists should reconsider the doctrine of total depravity. And parts of the things he was saying, people were trying to charge him formally with blasphemy. So he ends up fleeing to like this island in the Mediterranean and then uh, eventually gets like evicted or booted from the, basically the Island figured out he was there and they were like, you can't stay here. You're going to make things worse for us. Oh, no. um, at which point he accepted a, an invitation to come la- live in England and live with David Hume, which if you're a student of philosophy, you know, David mm. Hume a little bit where he, so he moves to England and basically lives out the rest of his days until Seventeen seventy six. So obviously he's hearing a lot about the American Revolution as he lives out his final years. Um but from in England. Yeah, yeah. from the imperial side (laughs) of the dispute. Absolutely. (laughs) And uh yeah. That's that was kind of his life. A lot of his like political and governmental critique that he writes about in the social contract. And another big famous work of his is called The On the Origin of the Inequality of Mankind. A lot of these came out of his time living in england had a lot of downtime basically david hume and uh that whole cohort were basically kind of living in like a frat house and they just kind of hung out and talked about philosophy and stuff you know how
2: late 1700s be imagine like a frat house of like 60-year-old philosophers. <laughs> right? <sick> right? <laughs> <laughs> who I was, feel like be I will say...
0: <laughs> Kat, Maybe,
3: Kat yeah. were you the
1: one who, who was doing a little research and you... Was it Rousseau who you thought was kind of hot? Because, <laughs> like, oh, there yeah, are portraits actually, of him yeah. and I'm like, damn, <laughs> this guy... So, like, that's... He was handsome. That's the part of yeah, his biography... I mean, out of the three that we, yeah, three no. That's the part of his biography I couldn't cover very well. Like, he had he knew a lot of women to put it <laughs> to put it i bet. To put it kindly um <laughs> he was kind of a hottie back and forth between geneva and paris and then eventually in england like
0: dang
1: yeah dude
0: yeah he kind of sounds just like a like expat type
1: yeah yeah a little bit a little bit and if you read the social contract which i just recently finished i was posting a lot about it on the uh Instagram, The
0: interweb. Yeah, while I was reading it.
1: Um, If you read it, you can hear a lot of specific things about like that oligarchy in Geneva that a ton of people were dissatisfied with. You can hear a lot of that. You can hear a lot of skepticism at like Parisian culture, especially as like Paris at this time was kind of becoming the uh, the peak of like outrageous art and fashion. And, like, everything was exaggerated. Everything was just becoming ridiculous in his eyes. So there's Mm -hmm. a lot of that opinion in him. He's kind of regarded as a, like, he he most certainly is Enlightenment era, but he's kind of regarded as one of the fathers of the, uh, like, romanticism movement within philosophy, which I, I don't know how familiar you guys are with romanticism. Give us a rundown. Not particularly. Essentially, romanticism was a minority reaction to the Enlightenment, uh, basically asking the question, like, has rationalism gone too far with what we're seeing today? Uh, Kind of the, the common way to say it is like, yes, we know medicine is good, but like, we could also overdose, so let's take it easy. And basically, that's what they were saying about reason, was that perhaps things like natural human emotion and intuition ended up being like the baby thrown out with the bathwater as the Enlightenment really started taking off in this era.
2: All right. I, I, I vibe with that. Yeah. I'm I'm on board so, with that. I'm um, a bit of a romanticist, I suppose. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, I'm a traditionalist and a romanticist, <laughs> I
0: think. Wow. Hell of a combination.
2: Very good. Um, If you know of
1: any... Uh, contemporary uh, musical composers, guys like Chopin and Brahms, mm-hmm. were also of the Romantic era. When it comes
2: to, and that's me- what I'm familiar with is the Romantic era of music, and, and art. it's kind
1: of tied to this Romanticism. It's mm-hmm. it is this movement in
2: gotcha. in culture in Europe right
1: now is like Brahms and Chopin were really looking at people like Mozart, and they were like, "That's good and all, but it comes across the little mathematical. Like, let's get the emotion back in our music." Mm. That's basically how how they were attempting to compose in answer to... That's
0: good and all? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's good, good. and I, all? I hope they said it like that too. I'm sure they didn't. I'm sure
1: that's a wild I, I'm <laughs> kidding. caricaturization. But uh, yeah, so basically Rousseau uh, kind of launched that politi- uh, philosophical stream at the time, looking at exalted reason and thinking that we, we've we probably suppressed emotion too much. Um and a lot of romantics focus on humans in nature, and maybe that that life of humanity was better before we had things like this ridiculous Parisian culture with all the, the crazy arts and, uh, and the sciences going on at the time and all that. So the basic question that Rousseau was always struggling with was, has the progress made in the arts and sciences been more of a bane or a benefit to us during the Enlightenment? We're gonna take a quick
2: break, then we'll be back to our conversation. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts. There you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. And thanks to Highline Media Network for having us as a founding podcast. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, No Normal People. More working with kids with disabilities, which brings me, me to me, which is like, oh man, that was cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah,
2: brought
0: tears to my eyes. <laughs> Like, I related more
2: than anybody on my team because I, don't, I live it. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh my gosh, Zach. Yeah. Seriously. That's so special. Yeah. And now back to our conversation. I mean, I, I've already given you a, a preview. Rousseau Rus- basically sees it as getting worse. And the further we go into arts and sciences, the further we get from the state of nature, which he regards as good, innocent, and peaceful.
0: That sounds like something someone who was subsidized his entire life would think.
1: (laughs) Oh, okay. Wait, that's a a good thought. (laughs) Say more about about that.
0: Well, it sounds like he had patrons most of his life and was able to just sort of like live comfortably and be taken care of to some degree Mm. and have the luxury and the freedom and be able to afford to think about the things he wanted to think about and pursue the things he wanted to pursue. Right so he had so he had a romantic view of life and i think other like historians looking with the benefit of hindsight could look at the enlightenment and argue that depending on how you measure you know what is good for humanity but if it's longevity if it's conquering disease if it's increasing wealth if it's you know those types of of metrics then the enlightenment absolutely improved yeah the quality of life for uh, human beings yes. around the world yeah
1: absolutely and so as as far as my reading has gone on him he he's not necessarily saying like we should completely ab- ab- like abandon everything that Isaac Newton is doing we should forget all of this we should just go back to like when we were dumb animals like naked in the garden of eden or whatever like he he would he would never go that far basically he was just trying to like could we could like we rein it back a little bit could we think about it and um, m- maybe consider the consequences of the directions we're headed. Because like I, a lot of people um, would look at like postmodernism today and they can trace it back to like if you're so uh, heavy-handed is the way they would put it. Like if you're so heavy-handed on reason, like eventually like if romanticism isn't going to do it in critiquing it and kind of bringing us back to the middle, like eventually something as as wild as like pure subjectivism and Postmodernism might just be right. the more extreme answer, hit. basically. Yeah. That's fair. I have a great quote here. Um basically he's trying to answer now, like, what is what is the point of government then? Like, if we're in this place where we have the arts and sciences and he views the deeper we go into civilization as the further away we get from human nature, like then what is government's purpose? So if Hobbes uh, Hobbes says, basically, life is ugly, brutish, short, and the government is only need- needed to maintain order. Locke disagrees with, basically, Hobbes's state of nature, eh, but still maintains, like, we have natural rights, that the government is only here to protect for us and maintain and help us maintain, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rousseau yep. says that, like, yes, Hobbes, you could give all the power to the Leviathan and all that power... Would go to maintaining peace in some way, but Rousseau would say, but you could also live peaceably in a dungeon. And that's basically what he thinks Hobbes' world would become. Like, you can you can live comfortably, mm-hmm. you can live right. peacefully in a dungeon, but that really doesn't, that doesn't get us anywhere. Mm. Rousseau would say the government is here to promote the general will of the people, and there's a lot of conversation about whether he was... Because he doesn't, he does a very bad job of defining what he meant by general will. And it's either the general will is like take the average of the population and whatever values like skim to the top, that's the general will, like just based on averages. A lot of philosophers, though, has t- have taken his line of thinking and called it the transcendental general will and basically say like there's values across uh, all of humanity that the government should be put in place to help promote like where, whereas mm. Hobbes is there to only maintain order with his government and basically be like the jackboot ready to like kick, <laughs> kick people in the teeth if they're uh, right. not behaving. Locke says like the government is here to defend us from something or like protect us to keep our natural, natural rights. Rousseau would say the government has more of an active positive role to like actually promote the general will and be a little more active but work toward that end um which i'm not sure i agree with either i think i'm very Lockean when it comes to
2: role of government i also see that as yeah, yeah go ahead well when looking into Rousseau, just a little bit it seems like he was a bit of like a utopian thinker in many ways yeah Um, which probably is part to do with some of those opinions. Like, yeah, you know, there, there is a way for, uh, you know, this government structure to lead a people to what would be like a utopian state or something like it. Right. Yeah. And I think, well, I mean, he, he
1: has a lot of thoughts on government that I'm, I might not be most well-versed to talk about here. I'm more here for the state of nature conversation still. Mm-hmm, um, exactly a fantastic quote here along these lines like pairing this idea of m- more arts more sciences get us away from the state of nature and this role of government the quote is while governments and laws take care of the security and well-being of men in groups these sciences letters and the arts less despotic and perhaps more powerful spread garlands of flowers over the iron chains which weigh men down snuffing out in them the feeling of the original liberty for which they appear to have been born and make them love their slavery by turning them into what are called civilized people. Mm-hmm. Ooh, hmm. spicy. The spicy response. I
0: can jive with that. Someday. Yeah,
1: so his, his basic conception is like um, the state of nature, nothing belongs to anyone. We, we exist in a place where there's peace. Uh, human beings are noble, we're natural, we're capital G good, and he views civilization or the social contract as the thing that corrupts us. And uh, uh, to paraphrase, the uh, the moment he thinks civil- civilization like tipped us over and began corrupting us was um, like in the beginning it all started going downhill when one man cordoned off a piece of land, told everyone else it was his, his and the rest yes. of them were stupid enough to believe him.
2: Right, right. right. And, and then that goes back to like the idea that like, yeah, that whoever did that first was who basically founded civilization, civil society. Yeah, yeah as we know it. That's interesting. So. So is he saying that then property is the foundation of society?
1: Oh, I think he's he I think <laughs> he wishes that property was not or the
2: foundation or to be organized and to have culture requires property.
1: Yeah, I um, in his conception, it
0: sounds like he separates culture from like civil society. Okay. He is that right? He
1: it gets blurry again. Sometimes his definition, sometimes yeah. he uses the words for different things, and his definitions get mm. a bit blurry here. I think he wishes that property was not the foundation of civilization, and uh, I mean, I, at this point, oh, let's see, I I don't remember. So he he lived from seventeen twelve to seventeen seventy eight. Was he a contemporary of Locke then, or was he later than Locke?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, their lives overlapped. Okay,
1: and he's mm-hmm. he's the younger, right? Okay.
0: Yes. Uh, no. What am I saying? Hold on. Let me correct myself. One second. No. Yeah, Locke died in the beginning of the eighteenth century. So no. Yeah, mm-hmm. Rousseau's younger, and their lives did not. Overlapped by like
1: a handful of years. Gotcha. Oh wow. Okay. So Locke actually outlived yeah. Rousseau. He died.
0: Locke died in seventeen o four.
1: Oh seventeen o four. Sorry, I thought I was thinking eighteen o four for some reason. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. No. Eighteenth no. okay. century. So it it, de- it definitely yeah. would have been something where he probably read Locke and uh mm-hmm. saw what he had to say about property. Which, I mean, based on that quote, it kind of sounds like he might be critiquing Locke a little bit just by saying because Locke's definition was basically like, no, that man put the effort into like putting up a fence on that land to call it his. And now we can call it his. Right. Is that how you hear I, yeah. that? Do you think we can hear he, it that way?
0: He, he mixes, he mixes labor. Yeah. 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 Definitely Locke's interpretation. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think Rousseau wishes that that was not the case, but I, I also don't think that Rousseau is naive enough to think that we can go back to pre property life. Cause basically like all, uh, all his philosophy is basically trying to answer the question like well what do we do now if we can't go back you know and that's that's where we get a lot of his uh theories on the general will and the function of government and like the forms of government and how they ought to behave uh this is the quote that i told you guys in our uh, our pre-taping conversation <laughs>
3: Oh Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> just to let everyone know.
1: <laughs> once again, if you heard our little clip of cat calling me a communist, this does not help my case. <laughs> oh God. So I Googled
0: Never gonna live that I Googled
1: that down. <laughs> I Googled the first sentence of this quote and the top Google result was <laughs> Marxist.org and <laughs> I was like
0: Dang it. This is
1: not Marxist okay. World. I gotta hold com. on. I gotta I gotta crack another beer for this. Oh,
0: number two. Oh, wow.
1: Okay. I like yeah. it. I gotta get in. Yeah, this <laughs> crack a cold one for your comrades. This
3: is- <laughs> where it's
1: gonna get wild. Okay. To quote oh Jean-Jacques Rousseau from hit- one of his more famous works called The Origin of the Inequality of Mankind. Quote: Beware of listening to this impostor. You are undone if you once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all and the earth itself to nobody. But there is great probability that things had then already come to such a pitch that they could no longer continue as they were, for the idea of property depends on many prior ideas, which could only be acquired successf- or successively and cannot have been formed all at once in the human mind. So again, I, this, this is the basis of me saying like, I think he wishes property wasn't the basis of everything now, but I think. I, yeah. I think he yeah. adequately recognizes that it is, but yeah, when, when
0: he's totally a Hemingway expat, he's got that <laughs> same vibe.
1: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, he does. So his <laughs> argument then is like corruption, um, in the state of humanity comes from society, and as we learn to, uh, like, and he, he's constantly doing this balance between like. It's it was almost necessary that we become civilized because, yes, now we have the enlightenment that gives us medicine and it gives us science and we can predict all these things and we can accurately describe the world to a point, especially with Newtonian physics, man, that like blew up the world. Right. Um, It was big. Yeah. So he's he's constantly (laughs) dealing with this balance of like, yes, with civilization, we learn what property is. And when it comes to people, like I said, he was kind of a ladies man. We learn to love and we learn to know what like that that deepest sense of affection and emotion comes from us. But at the very same time that we learn the deepest of these kind of loves, we also learn what it means to be jealous. And that is what he says, like the jealousy in any sense of the word is the first step toward both inequality and corruption, because if you become jealous of what someone else has, you recognize like, well, I could I could I could take that. And then you take it, right? Mm-hmm. Tracking so far?
2: Q, Cain and Abel.
0: Well, it's really, this is interesting, and I'd love to have more time to sort of develop my thoughts on this, because I'm just kind of, this is like stream of consciousness. Oh, but as I've been listening to you describe Rousseau and his past and his philosophy, there are there's a, there are these funny little intersections where I can see where his thinking can be used to explain sort of a more Marxist mm-hmm. view mm-hmm. and the opposite.
1: Right. He's like weird like that.
0: It, yeah, like, like that point alone, this idea of, of envy being kind of the root of right. inequality.
1: Yes, right.
0: I, I see sort of at face value how, uh, you know, a Marxist could use that to support their philosophy mm-hmm. or the idea of redistributing. Yeah, wealth, so the wealth, idea
1: wealth. is then, well, if we get rid of the concept of ownership, when we all live in a communal type, then way, no one can be jealous you of can't anything. be jealous of what right. you don't own. Yeah. We just recognize that it's all like the fruits of the earth. And we ultimately don't own the earth. That was kind of the, the root of my question. When we first started these conversations, Kat was like, where does, where does the definition of property come from? Like, when did we learn that we could just call like bits of dirt ours?" And mm-hmm.
0: I think it's human nature. Honestly, I think I think if there's anything that's innate, I think that is one of those innate ideas. Oh, interesting,
1: because um, I don't think Locke would agree yeah, with you. Locke says think, we're basically well, like this is blank slate tabula rasa. We learn everything. Well,
0: yeah, he that's, that's true. true. That's true. He did. That is his thinking, Um, uh, though. He he does assert that you acquire you have property ownership over your body and and the fruits of your labor essentially so whether that was mm, yeah something that he argued was innate or not i i'm actually not sure um but i think that idea that Rousseau's interpretation of that has been kind of played out in human history like in in we have like real world examples mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. that and and I think what we can observe is that you can try to dismantle, like, the human constructs of that system and you can try and and through that process of deconstructing it all, you can try to, like, do away with anything for anyone to be envious of because we all have the same stuff. But for a variety of reasons, mostly economic and also human nature, people end up with just with less across the board and people are still envious. People still want more, Right. right. Like, people like that that instinct to like survive and to be comfortable, like doesn't go right, away. Yep. So I don't think that has, I don't think that feeling is rooted in the property. I think property is the result of that feeling.
1: Mm, okay.
2: Yes. I can follow and, that.
0: And what I was going to say before is just like, I find that idea that envy leads to this thinking interesting because my father has always said that like that, envy is what leads to communism. So oh. I can just, I've just have heard it sort of played out in a totally different sure. direction of like, and
2: that's typically how I can you give, can it. you give me, yeah. me the, the, yeah.
0: so
1: maybe I just missed it and what you just gave me, but like, can you give me the bumper sticker of what envyism envy leads <laughs> to communism?
0: Like people, people, people looking at someone who has more and wanting that. And, and instead of, Pursuing their own path to acquire something similar in their own right. Or
2: finding solutions to allow easier access to achieving those ends. Oh, okay. So the it's, desire. But
0: it's driven by by seeing that somebody has something that you want right. and you don't have it. And wanting it and trying to come up with a way to achieve not, it that isn't the and, same way
1: as the okay. other person. And not recognizing right. the work. That. Okay.
0: Yeah. Which maybe is kind of like. A jaded perspective, right? Like my in my father's mind, it's like uh, he's well, fucking no, people. Okay. Like, <laughs> like, they don't want to work for no, it, right? yeah. So, so perhaps that's sort of like I don't know. Doesn't what what's the word I'm looking for? It's not. It doesn't present the that perspective in the best. No,
1: yeah, um,
3: it
0: strawmans totally. it maybe.
1: Well, yeah, it's definitely strawman. But yeah. so I I hear that, and I guess I guess I would say is like I I don't think Rousseau would at any point advocate for how communism has manifested itself in our world up to this point, especially through the 20th century. Right. I think, yeah, I don't I, think I think so. Rousseau would yeah, look at 20th century communism and modern day flavors of it and say like, you can't get back to the state of nature. You guys like we, we're already in a place where we recognize property as property, and we have to just live with that. We can't go back to the Garden of Eden. We have to go forward somewhere. And
0: well, and he seems to be. And correct me if I'm wrong, but from what you've said, it sounds like he isn't supportive of Leviathan. No, right. So if if these systems inherently need a Leviathan to enforce them, then it's, he wouldn't no, exactly likely be no, supportive no, because he
2: uh, he was very clear on like making his opinion known that like he, he wasn't for like society ruled by violence mm-hmm. or using force on its people because he described it as as like a way to trend towards despotism within a society. And so like that like those kind of tactics would lead to, you know, destruction of a society. So I get that. And then he also talked a lot about like emotions, yep. didn't he? That's the romantic Yep, yep. So what he said he mentioned something that like pity was the the only social sentiment that belongs to man is pity, which we would probably because it's the effective power to identify with anyone who yeah, suffers. Right. Which he would I mean at the at the
1: time pity was used, I think we could probably call that compassion in our modern day vernacular, right? right? Like mm-hmm. compassion right. is 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 actually one thing that he thinks has stuck with us post like losing our state of nature and becoming civilized. And I, I also don't want to paint him as the guy who thinks that it was bad, quote unquote, that we became civilized. Like, like I said, in the Hobbes episode, he, he kind of views socialization and civilization as a necessary thing. And that on the whole, mm-hmm. it will make mankind better by learning to live in this world now that we've lost the state of nature, but he recognizes
2: and sees where it could make men far worse, you know? Right. And so he's really calling to make sure you don't like to acknowledge that state of nature and to understand, I I guess what would be like the roots of man. And he would say the roots of man are good and
1: that we live peaceably. And like, kind of like what uh, Locke said, Kat, I love this quote you gave us where Locke, Says, don't take more than you can use, leave enough and as good for others. Mm, I, yeah, what
0: well, you're talking uh, about
3: property. from what
1: I know of Rousseau, I think Rousseau would be like, Yes, that do what John said, <laughs> that's absolutely what we should do. Like, <laughs> don't hoard, don't like amass like these massive stockpiles of things that you're never gonna eat. Like, it's no use to fill your barns full of apples if like 98% of the apples are gonna rot. Like, you might as well. Take what you need and and then live in a society or live in a a collection of people where you can like freely give those recognizing that the apple isn't yours. You know, like that's the state of nature to him is basically we get along. We're peaceable. But he also thinks that we're kind of innocent in the sense of like we're kind of dumb. We're stupid and unimaginative, as he says, and that the political society like creates us into an intelligent being and like a capital M man basically like mankind like we we need the a political society of some sort to like help us organize and realize this is where we live now and we have to mm-hmm. do do with that oh. what we will
0: huh so what would his we've kind of established that he was maybe a utopian thinker if we could describe maybe. it that way what what would his like ideal world look like because from what i my initial thoughts were that he didn't want any sort of central government or he or he didn't really think that a social contract was necessary but is that not? i'm so
1: glad you asked basically he won't so he won't he won't say (laughs) that the social contract (laughs) is unnecessary because he realized he recognizes that the social contract already exists and we can't go back to a time that it doesn't Mm-hmm. So, he's pragmatic so in the way. social contract the one i put so many instagram stories up about we have three basic forms of government in his mind we have democracy aristocracy and monarchy um and he recognizes that there are so many mixed forms of this like you could have a democratic mar- monarchy or a democratic aristocracy of sorts um and recognizes where experiments like that are already happening like he's even looking at geneva paris and the rumblings of America and saying like, see, we're all mm-hmm. trying stuff different. Like the experiment is working. That's cool. Um, he would say his, his main argument for governments is that the choice for what type of government you choose lies in an inverse relationship between population and the governors. So he, Ooh. he thinks, I, he thinks that the more people you have, you will eventually reach a point where like a pure democracy becomes way too complex and nothing would ever happen so that you, so you need to pare it down. And if that (laughs) civilization gets even bigger, you might consider like working on some sort of like aristocratic monarchy of sorts. Like the, the bigger the population Mm -hmm. gets, the smaller he thinks the government should be and more consolidated because They can't be as energetic, it. Like there needs to be a balance between energetic and deliberative. And honestly, if he lived long enough to see like what the founders were framing in the Constitution, I think he'd be like, "Yes, that.
2: Let's all do that, please." (laughs) Right. I think he would be a scalable solution we've Uh, come up with because he also he also talked about like what it is to be a tyrant, and he also discussed you know overthrowing like a tyrant sovereign power so he touched base on kind of the foundations of what was the american revolutionary war yes yep And kind of ad- kind of addressed whether you think that england was a tyrant or not i don't know but like he had already addressed that and was thinking about it so yeah it would be well, interesting ultimately to that, i think to i think we could, think could point that. to
1: Rousseau and say he helps us formulate the the bumper sticker of like absolute power corrupts absolutely or any form of power corrupts absolutely like that really says a lot about Rousseau, in my mind, because governments will always tend to deviate toward the power-hungry people and the people who desire for greater influence, in his mind. And he would say that those people who desire that much influence are also the most envious of us, and the more power they accumulate, the more wealth they accumulate, the bigger and fatter they get, the more power they wield, and the more evil they get thereby, basically.
2: Correct. And- Correct me if I'm wrong here, but because of our, and this is in Rousseau's, because of man's tendency away from what was that state of nature, he then goes on to claim that as a result, all man is in some form shackled to like a burden that is, I don't know how to say it, like we're all shackled to, or I guess man is in chains in every aspect of Mm-hmm. his life yeah yep okay and then and then that's why he then kind of started to discuss well how do we address that issue yeah and and, of being and he would say the
1: least bur- burdensome change or wow and he would say that the least burdensome chains as far as a form of government goes is what he calls is a democracy. elective aristocracy he okay. thinks he actually mm. thinks democracy of the three is the most dumb like He, I mean, like when he says democracy, he means pure democracy. He means like, he means like, all right, everyone
2: cast your vote on everything. He
1: means, yes, he, he means democracy in the sense of like, everyone pull out your iPhone and vote yes or no. Mm -hmm. And, and everyone actually did it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he would look at our system and be like, yeah, I think the system we have, um, um, where we like, we go to a place to vote or like the voting happens once a year or like once every few years or something, depending on where you are. I think that system, he would look at it and be like, that effectively weeds out the people who probably shouldn't be voting in the first place because they're not educated enough and Mm -hmm. won't stay up on it enough to really know what they're talking about. Well,
0: and we also have like, we also have like, you know, like a deliberative body in the Senate and like, different branches of government to check that power you know like we're a republic yeah. not just a pure democracy right, right? Exactly. Which which helps brief aside
1: that. Preventing that's actually people. a kind of a beef i have with the federal government um ever since oh i should know it especially if it bothers me so much but the amendment <laughs> the <laughs> amendment that made senators directly elected instead of appointed mm, by the yes. state fucking hate that like in my mind, like you lose the, the lines between Senate and House get so blurry that it's like, what's the what's the point of calling it two bodies if we're all just going to elect the same people like.
0: Oh, well, and there's an incredible push to basically dissolve the Senate and not and not just like the headlines. We've all heard about the filibuster and changing rules and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But like I've talked with a few people. This is a quick digression. I've talked with a few people (laughs) who are like, there's like a movement to do away with the Senate. Like people think that it is cumbersome and stands in the way of progress and that it perpetuates the quote unquote tyranny of the minority, minority being like rural conservative America and therefore like. We don't. You need would it. think, and we just need like a House of Representatives and majority well, wins. And that's if I'm it honest, goes.
1: I kind of get that critique because if you're directly electing both your senator and your House representative, of course you would expect their jobs to be the same. Of course you would expect the same outcomes, and like your hmm. your voice as a constituent of that person, of course you would expect the same outcomes because your relationship to them is the same. You got to cast a ballot. For both of those people. But if we got rid of that stupid amendment and made it so that it was the state legislature that nominates your senator for the next six years. Like, that's what becomes like that gets back to the state is represented by the Senate and the people are represented by the House. So much better in my mind.
0: I don't know the history of that. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I'm, I need to I'm actually read up all on for that.
2: that but, but maintaining a, a Senate, like have a Senate. Yeah, yeah. Step one. Yeah. <laughs> you guys, Keep you, you guys won't like
0: this as
1: my policy. This is two beers and now. Are you feeling it? Um, <laughs> you won't. Yeah. I don't, I don't get think you like this as my policy pitch for how to fix things. But I think we should get rid of that amendment and make mm-hmm. senators like removed from the people in a way and let the, let the senators represent the state. And if we do that, then we should get rid of the electoral college. For electing president. But only if we reestablish the Senate as like pure states' representation.
0: I have to think about all of that more, but it's the 17th Thank
2: Amendment. Thank you. And I will think about that more. Thank you. <laughs> I tend to be kind of gung ho for Electoral College, but uh, I will think about it. That's actually I think we could have like
0: a really well, great conversation about that so one here's, day.
2: Here's the. I'm here's not ready the, for it yet. Here's the tweet <laughs> length pitch
1: I have for all this is if right. we successfully <laughs> get the states back to nominating the senators then get rid of the electoral college cuz like I've always heard arguments for the electoral college even from both of you I think is that the electoral college helps us represent the state within the presidential vote because the number the number of electoral votes you get per state is based on your population so the electoral help helps, you know, helps you, helps the state kind of,
2: in effect, be involved.
0: Well, the argument is, the argument is that it prevents like states with more more populous states from just dominating, right? It prevents like New York City and L.A. from choosing the president. But isn't that what right. happens now with are the electoral cities, college? But what That's I mean, what are it feels like. Centers? Well wow, we can't, we can't go in this direction. We can't direction. go in there. Yari. yeah, we're not ready. We're not
1: ready. <laughs> I did it. Okay. No, it's okay. Can I bring us back? I, because I loved, yes. I loved this initial <laughs> argument in the uh, in the Hobbes episode. Can I bring us back to the Garden of Eden analogy again? Mm-hmm. I want mm-hmm. to present a case that I've actually heard from our boy JBP Jordan Peterson. Yep. I uh, I say that Your because boy. I know Torn is a big fan. <laughs> i'm not necessarily not a big fan i don't know i have complicated views but um he breaks down the the first few chapters of the book of genesis in a fascinating way Mm -hmm. in his biblical lectures and the way he kind of breaks down the knowledge of good and evil and like the pivotal moment that adam and eve choose to eat that eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the, the quick way he spells it out is like once once we eat of this fruit that gives us the knowledge of good and evil and we realize we are naked, as soon as you realize you are naked, you know how vulnerable you are and that's why we clothe ourselves because it makes us feel a lot safer even to put a couple layers of cloth in between, let alone like metal armor or whatever. But like once you mm-hmm. once you're naked, you feel that vulnerability and that's why like... That's why even Christians talk about marriage as being like a really sacred thing is because like the act of sex inside of marriage is like getting back to that utter vulnerable nakedness before the, the person you love. Right. And sharing in that and trusting each other completely. But so once we know that vulnerability and as soon as I realize I'm naked, I'm vulnerable and I see another human being who is naked and vulnerable as Adam and Eve both got to experience. Now, that once you see another person as naked, you also see them as vulnerable, and you know what those vulnerabilities are because you're experiencing that yourself. And that is essentially Mm what uh, Peterson says. Like, that's the knowledge of good and evil right there. Because as soon as you know what makes another person vulnerable, now it's possible to exploit that for your own gain. Correct. Yeah. Mm. Right? That makes sense.
3: Hmm.
1: And if I'm honest, that fits rousseau pretty dang well as far as his concept of the state of nature and which is why i made such a big deal in his biography about his his kind of rebellion and like constantly warring with the idea of total depravity and calvinism because i think he was probably reading the same passages um as a as a person of faith and uh, admittedly going back and forth between catholicism and Protestantism. And all that, but he was reading the same text each time and, and seeing like things seem good before we learned each other's vulnerabilities. And what is that if not we gain civilization and now we know how to exploit other
2: people through that civilization? Okay. What do you think? Interact with that. I would, I think that's a fairly good line of thought. And that also kind of ties into me perceiving him as a bit of a utopian mm-hmm. thinker. That, that holds consistent. I'll say it again, yeah. though.
1: I think, I think, I mean, Torna, even as Christians, I think we could probably call, like, Garden of Eden life as probably, like, utopia is a good word
2: for it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But
1: I'll say it again. I don't think Rousseau ever thought we could ever get back to that state of nature. Back to it. And he's Correct. living in a world that, like, now what do we do now that mankind has learned the knowledge
2: of good and evil and the vulnerabilities uh, of the person that's right me. so he addresses that there is evil but that total depravity isn't there and so he's then coming in and and trying to find it uh, using other terminologies like a a social contract that remedies that evil that he proceeds. yeah the
1: social contract that at least works to keep that at
2: bay right and so i think it was i guess you could say it as like a. A social contract that allows man to like recognize himself as an individual obey the law and simultaneously be free right.
1: yeah no i think that's good kat what do you think of that what do you think of this line of thought
0: sounds like he's arguing for limited government really <laughs> this is what i'm also
1: saying about rousseau is like yes i pulled that quote from marxism.org <laughs> or whatever. Um, Right. But also but also you can (laughs) hear that line of argument and be like, sounds like we agree. Like he's (laughs) that's
0: what. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier. There are these funny little intersections where I can see sort of his his theories or or his ideas being exploited by different like modern worldviews. But it sounds like he ultimately had a lot of faith in Mm -hmm. mankind and in humanity and. And, like, recognized the value of the individual and wanted to f- live in a society that allowed that individual to flourish,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I think I, one <laughs> way I heard a podcaster talk about Rousseau is that he was like he was the father of romanticism in a sense, but like I heard someone talk about him after studying him a long time. they They were like, he's eighty percent enlightenment, twenty percent like full romanticism. But he leaned into it kind of the opposite way.
2: Uh, maybe. Wait, what do you mean? Like, did did like did he want to be more of a romanticist than in hindsight he really oh, was? Oh, that's totally
1: possible. Again, it was his later life that I didn't study very well. <laughs> sure. So I missed that part. If that if that is the case, but having having read Social Contract myself, and which I have done a not, lot of thinking about this guy, you guys, because like. It's fun looking back over the last three episodes, and like Torna after three epi- after discussing Locke and Rousseau, where do you, like if you, it's not like if you had to pick just one, but like, are you still leaning towards Hobbes as far as all your research into Leviathan and like what what Hobbes thought?
2: Uh, no. I honestly, I don't think I lean into any of them in any like sure. particular vigor more than the other. Like it's just kind of okay, yeah, I can vibe with what Hobb's saying a little bit, and I can I can see Locke as being kind of more like the libertarian poster child. Oh, he definitely and, is. And like <laughs> Rousseau's like, you know seems like he's got some nice ideas that stem from probably kind of some childhood trauma and Like, you know, privilege. Honestly, I'm like, okay, I I get it. I kind of see all of this, but like, (laughs) I uh, yeah. This this will be for a later topic, but I've been really digging into like the more traditionalist, non enlightenment thinking, and I'm like, okay, all right. There's like a lot of value to be taken from pre enlightenment thinking. So interesting. I'm kind of opening my perspective a little bit. I think
1: the danger of any of it, and why I kind of like. Tried to couch my question for you just now is like, you don't have to pick just one, but do you lean anyway? Is like a lot of these guys, they, as philosophers, they force themselves to think in extremes. Right. And I think only subscribing to one philosopher is where we start finding problems in our society. But if we can look at so many, so many good and wise people, like just trying, to grapple with what the heck is human life and how do we do it together? And mm-hmm. like, it, we just tweeze out ingredients from everyone. And then we can like work that own recipe out in our own heads. Cause like it, I definitely, I mean, if it wasn't clear already after all that synopsis, I definitely lean toward Rousseau pretty hard as far as this goes. And uh cat, I right. can't help but hear that as like, But by also saying, like, yes, I'm also a mega privileged dude (laughs) and I have the luxury of thinking this way. But like, yeah, I like I I definitely over the last few years have kind of uh, reawoken to the uh, the importance of like intuition and emotion. And honestly, I was thinking I was thinking about this in a really weird way. It's like because Rousseau would say. Uh, like in a state of nature, we essentially get validation from ourselves, and we don't have to look outside of ourselves or to others to help validate what we are. Like we don't ask who we are anymore. We only ask others in a comparative or like envious or jealous in terms of jealousy. And in a really weird way, like he talks about, like we we don't like look inward anymore. We don't like delve that intuition mm-hmm. or allow emotions to actually inform us like if we if we divorce our emotions too much from our mind in his mind that's where we we start breaking down is we're not like integrating in a holistic way like every way we are meant to be and i have no idea how my mind made this jump but i was like yeah and if the government is also if it's in the government's best interest to make sure you continually validate yourself based on other people and not like introspection and looking at ourselves. Like of course politics would become like this fever pitched fucking game about like Mm -hmm. red team, blue team and the tiny yellow team or the green team or whatever. Like of course government would real tiny green team. (laughs) Of course government would want that more than not want that. And of course government would try and get in the pockets of special interests. And of course, like, the media they would want the media to be bent that way and honestly my brain went so far as like of course the government would then outlaw things like psychedelics and things that like have over over millennia like human beings have always connected to nature in like an extrinsic Mm -hmm. and like a very experiential way through like psychedelics marijuana like achieving an altered brain state sometimes helps people let go of the ego and discover themselves and the validation within themselves and not constantly play the Instagram game of like comparing each other's highlights, highlight reels to each other. You know, totally.
0: You reach like, yeah,
2: I you- didn't think this is where this was going to go, but I like it. This is, this is good. And this is why I'm saying I'm not leaning into either of them because honestly it's thanks to pursuing and and thinking about Orthodox Christianity a lot lately. But like, Trying to see and find value in that pre enlightenment thinking that was more emotional, more spiritual, and like a lot of these thinkers were kind of like hyper rationalists. Yes. Yep. And, and, and yeah, that's I good don't think and that's that what that's romanticism good. is, is basically saying, like, this is getting right. too extreme, walk it back. And, and i kind of am like, I'm an analytical mm-hmm. person by nature, totally. I think I am, you know, the engineering math kind of guy I, I like logic and reason and rationality and like equations right but i'm starting to see that it's unsustainable or it doesn't
0: i think it only gets you so it far. it only
2: gets you so far exactly yeah. mm-hmm. and and yeah i'm not saying that these thinkers are that way but like a lot of that post-enlightenment thinking has ignored the old world perception and i think there's Beality. value in that so I, I, need to th- I need to explore some, some older thinkers before I can really, like, make something here. But, like, yeah, you know, I kind of vibe with, like, the libertarianism thing. But I'm starting to see some, you know, trying to address some of the glaring issues.
0: I think, from my perspective, sort of the Lockean approach provides a really nice framework for society, mm-hmm. for that social contract. And then within that, on the individual level... I completely jive with what Rousseau talks Mm, about. Right, I think maybe separating the two, allowing for the individuality. I mean, and Locke did too, but he just, I think definitely had more of a kind of mechanical approach. Right. It feels cold, right? Oh, that's a good point. Whereas Rousseau does feel warmer. Yes. And more romantic. And, and I can completely appreciate that. And I think that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of value in like in tapping into and in listening to human emotion. There's kind of like a depth of knowledge that doesn't speak the same language mm, as kind yeah. of like cold economic practical thinking. Right. But I think the two can be married really well. Yeah. I yes. think one allows for the other, right? And from my perspective, like kind of that cold economic practical framework allows for the flourishing of, like, the romantic, warm human ingenuity mm-hmm. beneath it.
2: Right. And and Rousseau did introduce kind of, I mean, it makes sense because that's basically, I mean, it's the system we're in, and that is, like, you have to enter into a society and give consent to forfeit some of your freedoms. Yeah. Yep. To, like, let man... To, to ensure it, others. To, to ensure right. others, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's the system we're in. So maybe it's naive to say, like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So that's good. But then you also like need to take into account all of their well, Hobbes didn't really think in limited government, but you <laughs> understand like where limited government comes in. Because like the issue that we're seeing now is well now there's too many laws on the book and it's mm-hmm. There's too many infringements on freedoms.
0: We're trying to engineer if there if, if there's two different tiers here, not two different tiers, but maybe two different like stratospheres operating. Did I take a psychedelic? I don't <laughs> know. <Yeah>. <laughs> like, <laughs> but if there's, I think the point that we've reached now in the Western world is that we're trying to engineer sort of the individuality aspect of it. Like we're trying to. There's there's too stringent and complicated and interwoven structure above that's trying to engineer and determine particular outcomes beneath. And right. that's where you end up losing all of the freedom and ingenuity and creativity that comes from, in my view, the other
2: I'm not high. so good. <laughs> and sorry. I would and I would go as far as like equity and equality stems from like loosening up on all of these random restrictions and it leads to true
0: equity and equality yes yeah Yeah. Yeah. i mean
1: so you exactly to put it succinctly, we're talking about equality of opportunity and not outcome right yeah correct Uh, yes what a classic what a classic libertarian line that is Look at me! I can yep. be a libertarian.
3: Yep. <laughs> He's a libertarian.
1: <laughs> Let's start a children's TV show. Look at me oh go! God. Yeah, absolutely. That could be the oh. name of the show.
2: Look at me go! Look at me! Go. I love it.
1: I'm into it. Oh
2: my gosh, you guys! It's like a little libertarian, alcohol fueled libertarian <laughs> Kid show. Look at me go! Yeah i'll
1: apologize to anyone who knows philosophy and if i misrepresented rousseau in any way to be honest uh sometimes in my mind even like the lines between me and rousseau's thinking get really blurry because like i'm really into a
2: lot of what he has to say if i'm honest so yeah no and as i've been looking into like Locke and Hobbes and rousseau and something that really i haven't been exposed to much in the past like you realize how much of i mean and these are just 3 like how much of their thinking is embedded oh in right western isn't culture isn't it wild Everything. that like yeah, we can name totally.
1: specific dudes from
2: like 300 years ago
3: <laughs> that can right.
2: influence us and, this uh, and much. you know and then i haven't even cool. i haven't even got to dive into like the really old philosophical thinkers and that's what's really shifted my perspective here is starting to really understand how young the western perspective of the world is Mm, yeah totally and kind of having to like check myself and be like whoa yeah this really is like only 400 years old like since the enlightenment it would be Mm -hmm. like are are we gonna just are we just gonna throw away 10,000 years of human experience yeah in history yeah probably not fair point so let's find you know whoa Or get some perspective. So that's kind of where I was like, yeah, I really got.
1: Man, I love the way you articulate that. Because now what I'm thinking is like, it's one thing in 2021 to critique modern day China. But like, you can also study China from like 5,000 years ago. And like, just studying the history of China would be such an endeavor to be like, how does this like landmass over like 5,000 years become what it is in 2021 and how can we like Mm -hmm. at least in some way allow some form of benefit of the doubt for like yes of course these people grew up in that culture for how many thousands of years and like that watching just that single civilization evolve over time
2: yeah there's an important perspective there and and then you know with modern day china it's like okay well then you need to learn about the history of it being i mean this is going into a, like a random history but like i don't think people realize china was like at the turn of the century like 1900 like china was nothing well
0: china like, china japan was like japan
2: conquered china basically
0: yeah 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 china china was <laughs> oh god <laughs> i need my no 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 I, i'm kicking myself cuz i'm forgetting which dynasty it is i want to say it was after the Ming Dynasty, but I might be wrong, so don't quote me on that. But China was like the preeminent leader mm-hmm. in the world in terms of math and science yes, and absolutely. inventions yep. and mechanics. And I mean, they were incredible, right? And then their political system shifted. Yep. They became more protect- protectionist. They turned inward.
2: Correct. And they slowly Which we, saw, we started also saw with China. In the, or Japan in their history as well. Yeah,
0: they yep. slowly started to sort of basically the rest of the world outpaced them, mm-hmm. um, and they were stubborn. Um, you know, the, those dynasties were stubborn in 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 deciding to turn inward, and they kind of became uh, obsolete. Yeah. And then, yeah, fast forward a couple thousand years, and there are a couple hundred years, and they're you know completely decimated at the turn of the 20th century and then that laid the groundwork for communism to take root and they've been suffering under that and it's weird twisted version today Uh, now i'm just on a rant
2: no (laughs) no but then i mean this is the trajectory of history there are
0: certain but there are certain even throughout throughout the history of mankind whether it's you know sort of Our modern can be identified as our modern understanding of what Western civilization is or these like Lockean or Hobbes or Rousseau's ideas. There are certain approaches that work better to deliver human flourishing than others, whether they were identified and those existed Mm. before, you know, Locke identified it as being what it was and is what we know it today in those terms, right? Like there are just certain approaches that work better Mm -hmm. than others. Correct. So I think like as we all in Torna in your studies of sort of like pre-Enlightenment thinking, I bet there's similar patterns of what has worked and what hasn't worked.
2: Right. And and the biggest thing too is I mean, Locke and Hobbes and Rousseau, they're trying to understand man, the nature of man. Call it anthropology, psychology, uh, natural history. Like, this is something that the great thinkers of the ancient world knew about. Like, we, we, you and I today really are not that different than someone 4,000 years ago. Like, I think human nature has not changed.
0: I bet that's, yeah. I and agree. so
2: it's interesting that I specifically just, I'm so used to, like, uh, reading and thinking about the more modern philosophers or, you know, historians or whatever, because that's the world that we're in. But, like, yeah, Rousseau was wrestling with this, Hobbes was wrestling with it, but, like, have you read the Bible? Like, that's all about human nature and understanding yeah. and, I mean, or fill in the blank, like, whatever ancient text, like, there's a lot of perspective out there.
0: The Bhagavad Gita talks about this yes, <laughs> same sort of thing. Absolutely. I have a criticism of Rousseau that we
1: haven't touched upon. By all means, fire that we can just do quickly.
0: But um, one of the things I was looking over my notes that I took on him a few moons ago, and one of the sort of guiding principles i guess or sort of like fundamental pieces of his philosophy is this idea that that he found interdependence of man to be a weakness and and to be the source of inequality that man depended on each other for their survival Mm -hmm. and my econ brain (laughs) directly went to this idea that he that that inner that interdependence is actually can be like a strength because as people specialize in the production of certain goods or services that they're particularly adept at producing, they can they can sort of leverage that skill um, and they can have a comparative advantage in producing that good or service, and then can trade voluntarily with those who have a comparative advantage in creating other types of goods and services. Yeah. And ultimately, that means there are more. Well-made or well-delivered goods and services for everyone. Yeah. So that interdependence like breeds specialization, and it creates more.
2: Yeah, I mean, just imagine living. I mean, commerce and trade, and that's that whole idea has been around forever. But like, imagine you live four thousand years ago, and you're like isolated. This is just a random thought experiment. You have to build your house. You have to build your furniture. You have to like. <laughs> yeah hunt for food you have to grow something <laughs> and then like okay you have to make weapons make your clothing. so then you end up being like okay I've got one like, doctor, you know skinny crappy cow I got some half ass <laughs> weapons I got like three carrots you know my house is falling over right? whereas like maybe you're like really good at carrots and, and you can grow 300 <laughs> amazing carrots but you can't build a bench worth a damn but like your neighbor's like the bench dude it's great dude it's nice well
0: exactly it raises everyone's standard of living so i just thought that he kind of like totally overlooked that which at the time hadn't fully been articulated like adam smith hadn't written the wealth of nations and like talked about this yet well
2: again is that
1: how young it is, right? Cat, you successfully <laughs> found something I definitely disagree with Rousseau about because I totally agree with you. I'm into it. Look at us go! Oh, cool. I, yeah, is. because cool. like Excellent. I, I would almost go full on other way, and I think interdependence is actually like a virtue of what it means to be like human. Being a human being would be so fucking boring if I was alone. Like there's a reason. Like solitary confinement is a punishment and like a torture, right? Uh, yeah. Like we need yeah. people. Yeah. We need relationships. And like I, I, yeah. I, I, I enjoy is a weird word. I'm kind of like, surprised. I enjoy he, being interdependent on others. Like I like. Uh, th- wow, this is <laughs> this is me to a T. I like trusting people. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's good,
2: and that's yeah. where, and that's where, like the individualism is tempered by the twenty percent. Yeah, it, 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 no, just where like individualism, like in its most extreme form, is just unhuman. Oh, yeah, totally. Even though I tend to be like a very like individualistic thinking kind of person, I
0: think it depends on how you define that. Yeah. But yeah, there's
2: I a right. caricature.
0: I'm surprised we're so didn't didn't um. I'm surprised he didn't see the value of that interdependence at least on an emotional level.
1: Yeah, right. With his
0: romantic leanings. I'm surprised he didn't like didn't he enjoy his time with his 15-year-old older lady
1: lady friend? what <laughs> His <laughs> lady friend. His older his, woman. His, his, his cougar. Many lovers. His cougar, thank yes. you. There it is. Absolutely.
0: His lovers. Yeah. They were interdependent. <laughs> They're interlocked.
1: Absolutely. Oh my uh, gosh! Good one, fam. Shall we raise a glass?
0: Wouldn't you like to know how yes. that played yeah, out? Yeah.
2: yeah. Right, anyway, there, com- there completes the divine comedy of the trilogy. Lock and is closing. The trilogy. <laughs> I said divine comedy because I'm staring at oh, Dante's there you go. Divine Comedy. There you
1: right go. Oh, well, cheers, my
2: friends. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on the Whiskey Bench. If you would do us a favor, please tell a friend about the show in person, with a text, or by sharing about it on social media. You can join us on Instagram, Twitter,
1: Facebook, and Pinterest, all at Whiskey Bench Pod.
0: And don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
2: Remember, always drink responsibly, and cheers to a fulfilled life with all its beauty.
1: Hello, and welcome to No Normal People. I'm Stephen.
0: And I'm Dixie Lee. The internet didn't need another podcast interviewing the same famous authors,
1: artists, and thought leaders. Dixie, my friend Bailey educated me about a word called Sonder. And this is the realization that any stranger or passerby you see has a life equally complex, deep, and vibrant as your own. So join us every Tuesday as we talk to the normal people in our lives and hopefully inspire Sonder in yours. No normal
0: people. It's like Humans of New York, but a podcast, and in Montana. Highline Media Network. Normal people in normal places.